George Frederick Handel's world-renowned oratorio, The Messiah, tells in music the story of Jesus the Messiah, beginning with his birth, then his suffering and death, and finally, his resurrection. But remarkably, it does this using almost exclusively quotations from the Old Testament. So how do you sing about Christ's resurrection from the Old Testament? You turn to the book of Job and write a beautiful aria on the text, I know that my Redeemer liveth. That's right, Job said that even while enduring great suffering. And we'll look at it today on Groundwork. Stay tuned. From Words of Hope and Reframe Media, this is Groundwork, where we dig into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And today we've come to the fourth of five programs looking at the book of Job. One of the things we try to do on Groundwork is dig into all different parts of scripture. And Job is not only part of the Old Testament, it's what's called the wisdom literature. It's the familiar story of an innocent man, a righteous man who suffers great loss, and it's all about the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen to good people? So we've been trying to answer that. Yeah, and by the way, you pointed this out, and I don't think we've mentioned this in the first three programs of the series, Dave, but it is interesting. We, we did talk a little bit in the first program about how do we take Job? Are we supposed to read this as literal? It takes place in the land. Nobody knows where it was. It does. Right? It, no time frame is specified. So how do we read this? Uh, but it is interesting that traditionally, it, as uh, Jewish scholars took their, their scriptures, the Tanakh, they didn't quote, uh, put Job in with the historical books like Kings and Samuel. Uh, they put it in the wisdom literature. Right. So it's up there with Proverbs and Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes. So this is not a historical book in in Jewish uh, Bibles. It's wisdom literature, and wisdom is designed to help us find our way through life, and in this case, through suffering. Through life. life sufferings and, and those agonizing questions that come. And I, and I think most scholars believe it was written quite late, too, in the course of the composition of the Old Testament. But anyway, we've, we've gone through the story and we've, we've kind of recapped several times. The, these three friends come to commiserate with Job, to seek to comfort them. Job actually ends up sort of dismissing them as miserable comforters because uh, instead of comforting him, they end up getting madder and madder when Job doesn't fit into their preconceived notion of what God is up to in his life. Finally, at the end, they're kind of hurling accusations at him and they're calling him a terrible sinner and railing on him for his wickedness. And the whole thing sort of explodes and, and ends in disaster. And that sets us up for the end of the book when God is finally going to speak. And that'll be our next program and the final program in the series. For this program, and we realize we're going a little out of sequence here, but that's just because thematically Job jumps around a little bit. We're going to kind of go back toward the early to middle part of Job to hear a couple things Job says, which we haven't looked at so far. There's a lot of dialogue in this book, a lot of back and forth. We've only scratched the surface in this series, Dave, but he does uh, say a few other things that we want to look at, all the while defending his own integrity and righteousness and rejecting their arguments. Yeah, and some of the things he says in the book are much loved and have been statements of faith that are filled with comfort for believers. Believers for millennia have turned to a few of the things that Job says in this book, especially as they're translated in the King James Version of the Bible, and we're going to talk about that in the next segment a little bit, and and sometimes that can be a bit problematic. But, you know, the, the whole story begins, let's just remember, by affirming that Job is a righteous person, mm. and God himself confirms that. 
the narrator, the writer, who's actually very brilliant in the way he tells the story, says in the very first verse that there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright or righteous. He feared God and shunned evil. And we ought to step back just for a moment and remember what righteous means in the context of the Bible, in particular the Old Testament. It doesn't just mean it's someone who does right things. Right. To be righteous is also to be in a right relationship with God. To be justified, uh, to be righteous means you line up with God and that there is some not perfect for any fallen human being. It's never perfect, but that there is some significant accord with God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's goodness and your own righteousness, holiness, goodness. And as you said, Dave, uh, in the opening scene where God and Satan speak in the heavenly throne room, God affirms, have you considered Job? There, there really aren't too many people as righteous as that one. So Job is a good person. We know this. We know as readers all along that the friends are, are incorrect to say, ah, you, you must be bad. Uh, you know, you must be unrighteous after all. You, you look good, but maybe not. Look what happened to you, therefore. So no, Job won't have any of it. And through it all, though, you know, he, he affirms his radical trust in God, and that's important. But we often hear the phrase, the patience mm-hmm. of Job, right. which makes us think sort of about some stiff upper lip. You know, he just he just endured it. He just took it. He was serene. Uh, if somebody asked how he was doing, he would say, I'm fine. I'm just fine. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I no, Nothing, you know, because sometimes we get that answer from people. They, they have a terrible tragedy in their life. And you say, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm just fine. God is good all the time. I'm yeah. just fine. That's not Job. Uh, if that's what we define as the patience of Job, Job isn't patient in that sense. He doesn't just sit there and take it. He complains. He screams. He wails. He cries. He sits there uh, in abject misery. He's sometimes even suicidal. He's sarcastic. He's angry. He, you know, he lashes out at his friends. He mocks what they're saying because it's not true. And he's not shy about letting the world know how he feels. So, yeah, Job is a believer. He trusts in God. That's at the heart of his righteousness. You know, the Old Testament says famously in Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. And that's Job. He's living by faith. And by his enduring faith, he won't give up on God. So when his wife says to him, why don't you just turn God off? Just curse him. Just tell him what you think of him. Just say, you're, you're, maybe you're not even real, God, you know, or you're a monster. You're, you're mistreating me. Job refuses to do that. He won't give up on God. But that doesn't mean he's this sort of passive, mild, meek, you Stoic. know, if you're, yeah, if you're a person of faith, you must never, ever, you know, complain to God or accuse him. Not at all. Nope. Uh, and in that sense, if we do want to talk about the patience of Job, then it, it would be uh, patience in the sense of the fruit of the Spirit, which we did a series on Groundwork a while back, the fruit of the Spirit of faithfulness or sort of makrothumia, uh, which literally means long-suffering uh, in, in the Bible. So if Job is patient, he's patient in the sense of being faithful, uh, being long-suffering, but not— Enduring. Endurance, enduring. Yeah. Uh, but not— not along the way, not being afraid of asking God some hard questions. And it becomes very clear in the book of Job as it goes on that Job, he gets sick of talking to his friends very quickly. Right. He wants to have it out with God. Yeah. He wants to talk to God, get God in the dock, as uh, they used to say, God in the witness stand in a courtroom. Job wants to interrogate God. And so he's going to, uh, to move that. And of course, ultimately, we're going to hear from God before the book is done. It'll go quite differently than Job expects. But that's what Job wants. And so as he talks about that, 
we'll, we'll hear what he says and how he frames it all up, and we'll look at that in just a moment. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. I'm Dave Bast, along with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork, and today we're in the book of Job. Still, we're in the fourth program in a five-part series that is looking at this famous Bible character, this great story that has entered the canon of the world's great literature, really, because it struggles with the deepest questions that plague us, uh, the questions of why, of suffering, of what is God up to, of is there even a God? in the midst of, of a world and sometimes my own life that appears so chaotic, so senseless. And so Job helps us to wrestle with these questions. He's going to help us to answer them too, I think. But we, we said earlier that we talked about uh, Handel's Messiah and the, and the beautiful, famous aria, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And we're going to want to talk about that because that is, as all of Handel's oratorio is, based on the King James Version of the Bible, which is a very old translation now, and uh, it can lead to some uh, interesting tensions today. We'll, we'll, we'll be looking at that. But we also want to think about this really important verse from Job 13, because this is part of a, the background of all of that. In the King James Version of the Bible that many of us do know well, Job says, Though he, God, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Yeah, and, you know, that's one of those verses that believers have found to be full of comfort and to express their own feelings. I mean, it seems as though Job is saying, no matter what happens, no matter what God does, even if he kills me, I'm going to go on trusting in him. I'm going to endure in my faith in him, and uh, I believe he's my salvation. But that is, as you said, Scott, from the King James Bible. And and one of the problems that has caused some people, I think, to shy away from newer versions of the Bible is they'll be reading along and they'll come to one of their favorite verses and suddenly they'll find it isn't there or it's translated in a different way. And the truth is that Bible translations have improved over the years. As beautiful as the King James Bible is, more teams of scholars with more access to manuscripts and all the rest. We won't get into the details. Or but The Dead Sea Scrolls alone yeah, taught us a lot. But often modern versions will, will translate things in a, in a slightly different way. So the New International Version is a, a new version that many people use in church or for their own personal reading. And this is how it translates that same passage. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And actually, it says it could more properly be translated, he will surely slay me. I have no hope, yet I will defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would dare come before him. And we said a moment ago that what Job really wants is to have it out with God. He wants right. to see him face to face. He wants to be able to put his case to him and say to him, God, why? You know, I think maybe we've all felt that way at certain times. We'd We'd love to be able to 
look God in the eye and say to him, why? Why did this happen? Why did you do this? Can you explain this to me? And that's exactly what Job wants. And he says, in effect, even if it kills me, I, I'm still going to insist that right. I meet with him. Right. Or even if you kill me, you're not going to yeah. get off the hook. The one thing we know from the setup of Job, what we readers know, is that God gave Satan permission to do anything except take Job's life. So God is not letting Job being killed. Uh, but Job is saying, if you do, we still have to talk. I still want to talk to you. In fact, uh, listen to these words, too, from that same speech uh, in chapter 13. Job is kind of laying out some ground rules here. Uh, Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. How many wrong sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? So here Job is sort of saying, it seems like, and again, Job doesn't know what all is going on behind the scenes any more than his friends do, but it seems like... Job is saying, I'm pretty sure something went wrong here. Uh, some justice got derailed. They, the train jumped the tracks. Can we talk about that? I, I got some questions. Right. But, but, but before we do, in order to have a fair conversation, he says to God, just promise that you won't hurt me, you know, or yeah. you won't frighten me too much because I know I'm a, I'm a puny little human being. You're the God of God's and Lord of Lords, and if you wanted to, you could frighten me so badly that I wouldn't even be able to, you know, my tongue would cling to the roof of my mouth. So he says, God, let me speak, and then let's have it out. And eventually, as I think we mentioned, they do have it out. God does meet face-to-face with Job, as it were, and it's a very interesting encounter, and we'll save that for the next program. But In the meantime, here we come, I think, to also one of the key elements in the book of Job that explains a lot of what's going on in Job's own speeches and in his own mind, and that is the the issue of perspective, because Job, like another book in the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, Job is usually thinking about his life only in terms of this life on earth. And we've talked about that before on Groundwork. We've talked about heaven and hell and different perspectives on that. We tend to uh, read backwards into the Bible our view of heaven and hell from a New Testament perspective, and we just sort of assume, well, Abraham and David and Job and Moses all thought that way, but they didn't. There is an ever-changing, ever with ever greater clarity, characters in the Bible get a better understanding of heaven and hell. But in the Old Testament perspective, there was this thing called Sheol, which was sort of the realm of the dead where everybody, good, bad, and otherwise, went after they died, and they weren't at all sure that there was anything beyond Sheol. And that you would even read that in the Psalms. God, don't let my enemies kill me, because if I go to Sheol, I can't praise you anymore. Sheol is sort of this dark, dank holding tank, and nobody was quite sure if there was hope beyond that. Job is arguing from that perspective. I might die like a worm, he says, and then what? Dust will cover me, and is that the end? And Job is wrestling with, now that he is an extremist and is closer to death than he's ever been, he's wondering, is there more? And in, we'll close the program in a minute talking about a little insight he had. Right. That, but we have to remember that Old Testament perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It, so if you don't, just think about this for a minute. If this life in this world is all there is, the problem of evil and of innocent suffering becomes insoluble. Because this is all there is. This is all there is. And as we pointed out, sometimes the the wicked people don't get theirs 
before the end. They they live to be old and full of years. Well, and Job articulates this in some of his other speeches. And sometimes poor people suffer their whole life long and then they die. And in the end, everybody's dead. And what difference does it make? You simply have no solution to this issue if this world is all there is. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of the problem with Job. He's not sure if we just maintain that perspective. If a man die, he says famously, if mortals die, will they live again? That's from chapter 14. That is the question. It seems as though this life is all there is, and when we're dead, we're dead, and that's an end of it. And so Job even suggests to God, why don't you just look away from us? Just leave us alone. But then there's this other possibility. What if there is more? What if there is a life to come? And that could change everything, as we'll see. What if you could spend time in Scripture while you drove to work? What if, while you were making dinner, you could engage in thoughtful reflection about your relationship with God? What if, every time you exercised, you worked on your body and your spirit? When you subscribe to the Words of Hope Daily Devotional, you'll be able to listen to a few minutes of Scripture and reflection wherever you are. Check out the Words of Hope Daily Devotional wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Best. And we are uh, in a fourth program in our five-part series on Job. And we just were saying, Dave, that uh, weaving all through uh, Job's words in the middle sections of this book are these intimations of death, that he might die soon. And again, we were just saying from an Old Testament perspective, there was the worry that that's it. You die, and that's it. There's no future. There's no chance to praise God again. Maybe that's it. And yet... Uh, we, we've talked about that beautiful aria from the Messiah, and it's based on this verse from Job 19 uh, from the King James Version, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And, and yes, Job actually said that. That's one of those that uh, don't get translated away. Uh, here's a bit more of that passage from Job 19 in one of the modern translations. Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. In, in other words, what I'm about to say, I want it to be permanent. Mm-hmm. I, want, I don't want it to just float away in the air. I want there to be an indestructible record of what I'm about to say, and this is it. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. And that's just an amazing, it's like a a ray of sunshine breaking through the clouds suddenly and lighting up everything, uh, the whole landscape. That is an amazing little piece of hope, a a bit of the gospel that comes almost miraculously into this life of of suffering old Job. Right. And as we said, most of Job, like most of the Old Testament, wrestles with this idea of Sheol, a sort of a common realm of the dead, and there, there maybe is nothing beyond Sheol. But there are a few passages, maybe Daniel and Ezekiel, and there are a few passages here and there tucked into the Old Testament. O- often from books that are later, right. the, which yep. is one reason maybe why Job maybe yep. was written a little bit later. Yeah, you get kind of a sketchy, veiled preview 
of what will come to full fruition and the picture of the afterlife that will uh, finally come into nice sharp focus after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, And that is where we now as believers in God through Christ Jesus the Lord gain our perspectives on on the afterlife. So this isn't a full-blown, and Job was almost surely saying more than he knew here, right? right? Uh, And the the author of Job who wrote this down was saying more than he knew, but we certainly are getting a preview of the idea of the resurrection of the body, our bodies, that this flesh will decay, but there will be, there's more than a hint here, there will be a new flesh. And I will see and praise God in that new flesh. And that would be our affirmation of the resurrection from the dead of us all, of which Jesus was the first fruit. He was was the first one and we'll follow. And Job also mentions his redeemer who lives. And redeemer, that's a great and important concept in the Old Testament. Uh, We did a series on groundwork about the book of Ruth. And that's one of the key ideas that emerges from Ruth, this idea of a kinsman who's also a redeemer, the one who delivers you from slavery, who pays your debts for you. And again, looking at it post-cross and post-resurrection, we can read back into that term so much more than Job would have known or, or understood. He couldn't quite guess how this was going to happen, right. that he would live again. He couldn't begin to imagine who that redeemer would be. But with the wonderful knowledge that we have, uh, we can kind of sing Job's words along with him and after him with an even deeper meaning. And what's great about this, Job, the book of Job has 42 chapters, and this comes almost at chapter 20. So this is almost at the dead center of this book. Uh, And they're right in the middle of this book, in the middle of massive suffering, big theological arguments and lots of wrangling with Job and his friends. In the middle of all that, as you said, Dave, like a ray of sunshine on a cloudy day, comes this startling testimony and confession of Job, which is so startling and for a man of his time, so out of time, it almost also counts as a prophecy, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that there is going to be, in a way we can't conceive of, Job isn't thinking about, oh, well, the Son of God will become a human being, and then he'll, oh, no, no, that's not giving (laughs) too much credit. But the Spirit gives him enough insight to say, this is the trajectory, this is the arc uh, of of where things are going to go with God and with his image bearers. And this is ultimately, too, I think, the answer, the final answer to the problem of suffering and the question of why this life isn't all there is. And there will come a time, as the Apostle Paul will say, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a final judgment, a final sorting out. Those wicked people who died, you know, sleek and fat, and their animals all were reproducing, as Job says, right. and they, their children were spreading out, and like Don Corleone in his garden, they, they died uh, happy uh, ends to a terrible, wicked lives. Well, it's not going to. That's not the end, really. There's something beyond that, when God will address all the evil that's been done in the world, and He'll bring the secrets to light, and there will be no more anonymous victims, you know, who disappeared into the gulag or right. something. Nobody ever. So that's all coming, and that too is implied by the resurrection. In that day, we look for mercy uh, through Christ for our sins, but we also look for righteousness. And as the New Testament says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That is the distillation in the New Testament of everything that Job ever could have hoped mm-hmm. for. And it is everything any of us could have hoped for, that our life is hidden in Christ and he is coming back. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Dave Bast, and we'll hope you'll join us again next time as we study how God answers Job in Job 38 to 42 and unpack God's response to our quest to understand why bad things happen to good people. Connect with us at our website, groundworkonline.com, and share what Groundwork means to you or give us some suggestions for future Groundwork programs. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Media in partnership with Words of Hope. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our studio relations manager is Christy Prinz. Our content and managing producer is Courtney Jacob, and our executive producer is Stephen Coster. <laughs>